0: Welcome to the Gathering Chattanooga's audio resources. This message is part of a teaching from the Gospel of Mark. For more information on the Gathering, or to find additional resources, visit gatheringchattanooga.com. Again, that's gatheringchattanooga.com. And please consider subscribing to this podcast. We hope you enjoy, and that God blesses you richly through the teaching of His Word. Good morning. It's good to see you here. Grateful for those who are online worshiping with us. I want to encourage you to turn uh, to the passage you just heard read to you, Mark chapter three, verses twenty to thirty-five. As we look today at um, how Jesus interacted with a couple of different groups, uh, this is what some scholars call a Markan sandwich. You ever heard that Markan sandwich? So, in his writing of the gospel, there are several times where Mark, there are five specifically, where Mark will insert a story within uh, like a sandwich. So, he'll have like two similar stories uh, as the two pieces of bread. And kind of in the middle, there's another story that serves sort of as the meat of the story. And it gives cohesion and it brings, it makes sense to the whole account. That's what we have here, just if you're interested Uh, Mark chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 11, and chapter 14 are where the other ones are found. Of course, we're going to get to those soon enough. Maybe not soon enough. We don't go real fast, but that's all right. But in this case, Mark puts this interaction with the scribes between two uh, family narratives. And so the answer that we're looking for is why? Why does he do this? What is his point? What does he want to teach us? And as I was Thinking about this, I was reminded of a, um, of a story that took place several years ago. And it was a social experiment that was done where a man was set up, set up outside of a subway, a busy subway. And he started playing the violin. And so as he was playing, they noticed how people reacted to it. Most everybody just walked on by. They either had earbuds in, they had their face down on their phones, whatever. They just, they just totally ignored him. Did not think about it at all. Of course, with busy subways, there are musicians and all sorts of things going on all the time. So most of them missed it. Some of them stopped long enough to, to take a listen for a, for a couple of minutes. They may throw a little money into the to the case. Thought it was good, enjoyed it, and walked on. As best we can tell, nobody really. Gave it really what was due because this was, what they didn't realize, was a world famous violin player who was playing a three and a half million dollar Stradivarius who just a couple of days earlier had packed out the Boston Symphony Hall. People were lining up to hear this guy and they totally missed it. And I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be cool if they realized it? Wouldn't it be cool if they were standing there and they recognized this guy and they understood that they were mere feet away from a world-famous master doing his thing that people were paying big bucks to listen to? How cool would that have been? They didn't understand, they didn't realize what they were missing. They were tossing a few bucks thinking that he was a homeless musician, uh, but they didn't take him seriously. And I think that this is what Mark is getting to in this passage. Jesus' own family, his own associates, didn't recognize him. They didn't understand what they had. They didn't understand how close they were. And then the experts of the law of God completely miss him. They pl- completely misinterpret him. They get it all wrong. And I want you to notice in this passage how. Mark draws this comparison. He puts them together in verse 20 and 30, 21 and 30. Because in 21, the reason that they give, that, that the family did what they did, was, quote, because they said he's out of his mind. And then Jesus responded to the scribes the way he did. Because 30 says, quote, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So because they said he's out of his mind and because they were saying He has an unclean spirit. And in both of these cases, there's a level of unbelief going on here to varying degrees. And and they uh, cannot get it. They had seen or they had heard of his works, how he healed the sick, how he cast out demons. This was well known, yet they both failed to understand him and they both sought to control him. In different ways and for different reasons, but they were both seeking to control him, which would have prevented his ministry from going forward. I mean, if you think about what they said, that he's out of his mind, his family is saying he's out of his mind. How many people would have heard that and said, well, if his, his family knows, if they're saying he's out of his mind, then I'm out of here. Or the, the, the legal experts in the law of God, those who should know all of the Old Testament, they say he's, he's doing his work as a result of being in cahoots with the devil. Who, who's who's going to stay there and listen to him? In John chapter 10, some combined both of those ideas and they said, he has a demon and he's crazy. (laughs) Got it all covered. Why do you listen to him? It's an amazing thing because the goal of the enemy was to use these unbelievers to stop the mission, but Jesus was going to have nothing of it. And through this, we get to see who the true family of Jesus is. And then we can look at it and determine if we're part of that family. So Mark is going to contrast those who felt they had a claim on Jesus with those who understood that Jesus had a claim on them. And we're gonna see that very starkly. So we're gonna start with his family looking at verses 20 and 21. So Jesus entered a house. This is most likely in Capernaum. It's most likely Peter and Andrew's house that we've seen already where he was and the crowd gathered again so that they were even uh, they were not even able to eat when his family heard this they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind so the first issue is why did the family go what is it that motivated them what pushed them in that direction where they said we got to go take care of things we've got to go and and take care of Jesus and we're not entirely sure why but a lot of scholars believe that it was really out of it could have been out of concern you know, they heard things like uh, regarding the situation. He wasn't taking care of himself. He wasn't, getting eat, uh, he wasn't getting food. He wasn't resting because people were constantly swarming him. And this confrontation that he was having with the authorities was a bad idea. And so some scholars believe that they, they had good motives. They were just wrong. They were wrong in how they went about it. And that helps explain if Mary is there. In, in verse 31, we see that Mary was a part of that group. We're not sure if both of these groups are exactly the same. The way Mark talks about the first group of family, the word that he uses for family could be family. It could be the same people in 31. But it also could be associates. It could be disciples. It could be, you know, broader family, kin, kinfolk. Um, But we don't know exactly. But regardless of what their motivation was, they did not believe that he was in his right mind. Something was wrong. Something had clicked. Something had set off. He just was no longer in control of himself. So they felt they needed to take control. And I want you to notice how they approached him. What does it say? It says they set out to restrain him. That literally means they went to seize him. All right. The other time that Mark uses this is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Roman soldiers come and they seize him. Same word. So you get this idea of fully taking control, of taking control of him. So I'm sure they were aware again of the amazing things that he had done, yet the conclusion was that he was something along the lines of a lunatic. He had gone off the deep end. You know, there are plenty of people today who believe that. So they take control of the narrative And they start talking about how he taught some good stuff. But the idea of him being the son of God is insane. There are people who believe that literally. And there are people who believe that practically in the way that they live. So that's the first group. You've got the family. And then you've got the scribes. Verses 22 to 30. Verses 22 to 30. It starts off saying the scribes had come down from Jerusalem. Saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. He drives out demons by the ruler of of the demons and Jesus is going to address that. But we've got this this group of scribes who are the second group that Mark mentions who are opposing Jesus, but these guys are more bold and they're more direct, they're more confrontational. Similar to Jesus family, they have made a judgment about him. The family judged that he was out of his mind. The scribes have judged that he is evil. And in 22, you've got two specific but different uh, accusations they're similar but they're different the first one is that he's possessed by Beelzebub we don't know specifically what beelzebub uh, refers to beelzebul as it's written here uh, but it is believed to be something along the lines of the prince of demons so it could be Satan of course Jesus connects that a little later but it is it is the demon prince so he's possessed by the demon prince that's pretty strong when you say if I said that I th- I think you're possessed by the demons, man. You wouldn't look at that favorably. You would not take that as, you really think highly of me, don't you, David? You would understand how heavy and weighty that that is, that you are pure evil. And the second one is that he drives out demons by the rulers of the demons. Now notice something about this. They don't deny his power. They don't deny the miracles. They don't deny that uh, demons have been Uh, kicked out. They assume that. They they give that. They don't question or deny his power. They deny its source. They say that he's done all these things. He's just done it by a different source. And the thing that I see in that is that faith is not uh, the result of evidence or proof. It's not that I can argue your way into the kingdom of God. It's not about that. They saw that. They saw amazing miracles. They just didn't believe it was God. And so they deemed it something more along the lines of unlawful magic. They saw it. Can you, can you grasp that? Can you imagine seeing people's, people healed? You know, somebody who's got an arm and, it, and it's all shriveled and he reaches out and it's, and it's whole. And then they attribute that to the devil, to evil work. And the reality is, with both of these groups, if you reject Jesus as Lord, there really aren't many options left to you. These are really the only two options you're left with. He's either lost his mind or he's evil. This, of course, is what C.S. Lewis was getting at in his book, Mere Christianity, if you're familiar with that. But part of what he said was that Jesus would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he's the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He never intended to. So... When you think about that and you're really, you're really uh, driven down to very few options, what is it that you believe about Jesus? Where do you put him? Where is the category of Jesus? Is he, as C.S. Lewis gave us, is he a liar, a lunatic, or is he Lord? And I don't encourage you not to be too quick to answer that. Because it's easy for us to say he's Lord... But it's also easy for us to marginalize him as irrelevant with our lives. So we can literally say Jesus is Lord and practically live as though we're saying he's not. So who is Jesus to you? You may not go to the extremes of lunatic or evil, but you're not going to the extreme of Lord either. And that's important for us to consider. Thirdly, we're looking at how Jesus demonstrates that he's not crazy and he's not the devil. Looking at verses 23 through 27. And in this section, uh, he summoned them and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. So Jesus responds to both accusations using this simple logic in these little parables. So how can Satan drive out Satan? Is Satan destroying his own kingdom? And I can see the look on Jesus' face like, really? Seriously, that's what you're going with. It's a ridiculous assertion. And if it were true, Satan would be weakened. His kingdom would be collapsing under its own weight. Yet Jesus refers to Satan as a strong man. He calls him that. He has dominion over this world, holding people captive through disease and possession and spiritual darkness and death. These are all under the dominion of the strong man. And Jesus makes it clear that what is crazy is to believe that. The scribes, they offer no explanation. The scribes don't answer him back because they know that his logic is sound. They know that they can't say anything against that. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's stupid. They get it, but they still don't believe it. And that's something when you can look at this logically and go, okay, yeah, you've totally destroyed our argument, but I still don't believe you. I still don't believe that you're the son of God. I still think you're evil. This is the way it is. Because neither miracles or arguments would lead them to believe their hearts were hardened. And then in verse 27, Jesus uses another parable to reveal what his mission is all about. In verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So Jesus turns this all around. He admits, he gives in that Satan, yes, Satan is the strong man, but here's what I'm here for. He is powerful. No one can plunder his house. And here's the kicker, unless there's somebody stronger who comes in and can tie him up, and then he can plunder his house. Way back in Isaiah 49, 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Can the the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your children. Then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And then in Jesus' day, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus came to Nazareth, verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah, there we are again, was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, "'The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor.'" He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 says, He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and everything was quiet. This is my commentary. Everything was quiet. You can imagine that not a pin drop would have been heard because all eyes were on him. They were fixed on him. And then at the right moment, he looks at them and he says, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. How powerful is that? Prophecy 700 years earlier proclaimed that Jesus, that that God would come and he would deliver the captives, that he would set the people free, that he would save the children. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's right, here I am. So the argument that he was crazy or that he was evil doesn't hold up. Because there's really only one option. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus has come. He has bound the strong man. He has plundered his house and he has set the captives free. And if he's Lord, he can deliver you completely from the realm of evil. He can break the bondage of sin in your life that just keeps you bound up. It's the weight of sin, the the weight of guilt that you just keep falling into the same old sin. It's like, I can't get out. And Jesus says, I set you free. I'm here to deliver you. I have bound the the strong man. I have come to set the captives free. I have come to set my people free. So the simple question is, are you still in bondage? Have you failed to realize that Jesus is the Son of of God? He's God in the flesh. And that he's come and he's accomplished this. He's found the strong man. He's come to set you free. But you're like, I don't think so. And Jesus would say, that's crazy. I would say that's crazy. Understanding that it is not arguments and it's not proof that's going to convince you. But the Spirit of God is going to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God. And that he has set you free. Now, to those of you who have believed... Are you still living like you're in bondage? Are you still living as though you have locked chains all around you? Are you living under that weight? That Jesus has come. He has removed the locks of the sin that's holding you down. But you just haven't shed them yet. It's like you're weighing or walking around with this weight on your shoulders. With this guilt on you. And what you need to do is to believe Jesus... For his word is when he says you have you have been set free when he said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and the truth is that i am the messiah the son of god i have come to complete the mission to release you to make you new to adopt you into my family drop the chains understand what it is that god has done which is wonderful because mark deals with that in this account as well when we get to this promise and this warning in verses 28 through 30. And in this section, Jesus is going to give a serious warning to those who do not believe. And it's, I think, one of the most stress-inducing verses in, the, in Scripture. Because so many people say, what exactly is this, this un, unpardonable sin? And have I committed it? I don't really know if I've committed it or not. Have I done this? It, am I out? Am I in? What is this? And what I hope is that we can set your mind at ease as we look through this, uh, looking at what the unpardonable sin is, and to get this right, for us to get it right, we have to understand it in its context. Now we skip to to verse thirty. Jesus makes it clear that he is responding directly to the scribes. Verse thirty again says, "Because everything he just said, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit." So Jesus is responding directly to that claim of the scribes. So he's speaking to them. Again, think about who they are. These are men who studied the law. They were serious about blasphemy. They didn't blow it off. They would have been, they would accuse, they accused Jesus of being blasphemous. Because he said he was the son of God. So they take blasphemy very serious. They understand that. And they should have known better. They should have been able to recognize Jesus in light of the Old Testament prophecies. Some of the ones that we just read out of Isaiah. They should have been able to see this. Instead, they looked at his works and they attributed it to the power of the devil. They accused Jesus of having an evil spirit. They chose to call light darkness. And Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, notice too. What Jesus said in verse 30, I want you to look at the tense of the verb that he used in verse 30. He said, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is something they were saying. It's not just that they said it once. They didn't just say something bad about Jesus. They didn't just say one time something about the Holy Spirit of God. This was something that was in them. It was something that they did. It was a sustained belief. Their hearts were hardened To the work of the Holy Spirit. And if they continued, Jesus warns, there would be no room for forgiveness. So it was a continual thing. James Edwards explains this. He said, whoever, like the scribes, can look at Jesus and say, this is the devil. Or conversely, look at the devil and call him God's son. That person is hopelessly lost. This is, as Mark says here, an eternal sin. Since anyone who willingly or not cannot distinguish evil from good and good from evil, darkness from light and light from darkness, is beyond the pale of repentance. William Lane says in the historical context that Mark places this account, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and grace of God released through Jesus' word and act so if we summarize all of this and you're still like, okay, so what? Let me, let me just put it this way. If you are stressed out and anxious about whether or not you've committed an unpardonable sin, you have not committed an unpardonable sin. If you're concerned about that, that shows that your heart is not hardened toward God, that you are still within the realm of repentance so if you're, if you're saying, well, you know, this past action that I, that I did, this thing that I did in my past, I, I can't do that. No, your heart still softened toward God. And so you have not committed the unpardonable sin. We're talking about people who are hardened in their rejection of Jesus. Who say that Jesus is not the way, that Jesus cannot provide salvation. I don't care who the power is. No way. But people who say, yeah, I believe. Yes, I, I, have, I have trusted in him, but I'm still struggling you may be struggling from sin, but it's not the unpardonable one. You need to settle that in your, in your heart. And this is the importance of understanding grace. Let's look back at verse 28. Verse 28. Again, 29 is where he gave the warning. Back up in 28. He starts by saying, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So again, just 28. Let's isolate 28. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says that when his words are authoritative and true. They are absolute. Nothing can change it. This is fact. Hold on to it. All right? So hold on to this. Jesus wants you to hear this. He didn't want you to miss this at all. Get it, he says. Truly, I say to you, all people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. All. That's a pretty powerful word. It doesn't really leave anything out, does it? It's kind of exclusive. It's like, or inclusive maybe. It includes everything. All right, think about that. Things like murder, rape, all the bad ones, the worst ones you can come up with, the most heinous crimes against humanity that you can come up with, that fits inside of all. Right? Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I I the lunatic here? Because it sounds crazy to say somebody who kills somebody in cold blood and they, they have held on to that for years and they're not sorry that if they become sorry that they can be forgiven and welcomed into the family of God. And yet I've heard that that's happened. People in prison for life. There's no chance of parole. They're not going anywhere. But something happens and they repent. And they are deeply sorry. They are burdened by their sin. And they lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And they find peace. All. All sin. So let me ask you this. If you're struggling with that. What is it that you've done. That discounts your part in the all. What is it that makes you the exception If you're struggling with that, surely Jesus can never forgive me. Surely, surely what I've done is too bad. Really? Is that you're the exception? You're the one? I've been wanting to meet the one my whole life and you're it. How can that be? How can he forgive everything and nothing falls out of that? Because if he can forgive those. And. Throw them as far as the east is from the west. How are you beyond being welcomed into the family of God? Whole, complete, sinless in the eyes of Jesus because he took the sin to the cross and he gave you cleansing. It brings us back to family. Verses 31 to 35. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd sitting around him told him, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? He didn't, there wasn't a lapse in memory. Who are they again? Who are they? It's It's a question that he asked so that he can define it. Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother and my sister and my mother. So the question, who are my mother and my brothers? Who is a part of the family of God? That's the big question here. So he's got these people. It could be the same ones in the first part of the story. They come and they're like, hey, we want to talk to Jesus. Somebody send him out here. Again, control. We have a say on him because we ain't just the people hanging around to listen to him trying to get a free lunch. We're his family. So we have the authority to say, Jesus, come out here. And Jesus, he's not being rude. He's just saying, no. It's kind of like when he was 12 and he was, he was uh, in the temple and they didn't know where he was and they came back and said, hey, uh, why are you surprised that, that I would be about my father's business? That took priority over his immediate family. It, it takes priority here. And so they say, come out. And Jesus says, who's my mother and my brother? Who's my family? He makes it clear that they are the people who have submitted to his lordship and their intent on doing the will of God. He says, looking around at the circle, at those in the circle, that would have been those who were immediate to him. Those would have been his apostles. He looks at them and he says, Here, here are my mother and brother's. But I want you to see how he expands that. Because there were a lot of people there. And so he says to his apostles, here are my mother, and my brothers. These are the people who do the will of God. And then he says this, whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. Whoever is very much like all, isn't it? It's the same. All who do the will of God are my mother, and my brothers. Whoever, anyone who does that, anyone who believes in me. Anyone who trusts me, follows me, submits to me, understand that I have control over them because I bring them life. I bring them peace. I bring them joy. Even in the midst of pain. Even in the midst of suffering. And we see this even played out in Jesus' own immediate family. We see this in Jesus' brother. Jesus' brother James would have been one of the ones who were there. Maybe at the beginning too, but definitely we've been there. His mother and his brothers were there. James was one of the the brothers. Scripture makes it clear that James did not believe in Jesus either. And yet Paul wants to make it clear that when Jesus rose from the dead, one of the people that he revealed himself to was James and the other apostles. He revealed himself to James. He appeared to James. And it had an effect. Because James went on, as we will read in Scripture, James became the head of the church in Jerusalem and was eventually martyred for his faith in his brother. Now, somebody would go, James, you're nuts. You're not calling your brother the the Lord. He's your brother, man. Come on. Same mom. Different dads. Same mom. And yet he went to his death because he believed. And so we see somebody in the immediate family of Jesus Who became a part of the eternal family of Jesus. We don't know what happened to the other siblings. Have no idea. But only through submitting to his lordship. Will they actually be considered the family of God. Only then will they experience abundant and eternal life. So having said all that. What is your attitude toward Jesus? What is your attitude toward Jesus? Is he a marginal figure in your life? Someone you sing songs to on Sunday but reject the rest of the week, the rest of the time? Did he say some good things but doesn't rise to the level of deity? If not, then there's nothing good about him because he said he was God. And if he said he was God, he was at best delusional and at worst evil. An evil blasphemer. He's crazy he's evil. Jesus didn't leave room for these things. If he's Lord, he's Lord of all of your life. And if you believe this, then your life is going to be evidence, maybe not perfectly, we're not not going with perfect, but it will be evidence by your desire to do the will of God in your life, for the will of God to be accomplished in your life, for you to be directed by the will of God, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but, but submitting to the Holy Spirit. I don't want to leave you with one passage of Scripture. Matthew 7:21. Jesus said, "Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord." not everybody who calls me Lord" will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But what? He who does the will of my Father." So Jesus puts that qualifier on it. Why? Are we putting a burden on you? Say, well, you're not going to be saved unless you're doing things. No, that's not it at all. If you hear that, you're you're misunderstanding what's being said. What is being said is, if the Holy Spirit of God has come to you and transformed you and made you new, has done away with the old life and given you a new life, it's not now I've got to try to do these things so that I'll show that I'm... I'm a child of the king, but the Holy Spirit of God moves you toward these things. It's something that is a result, a natural result of your having been saved, not as something you do so that you can either appear saved to everybody or God will be happy and make sure that you are in the family because, man, you're doing a good job. Man, you're trying hard. Out of you will flow, flow rivers of water. You're not pushing it out. You're not turning on the fire hose. Out of you will flow. So are you a part of the family of God? If you're not and you know it, then I want to encourage you to trust Jesus today. Whoever, whoever, if you hear that call, if you know that there's something not right in your life, run to him. We've already looked at that. Jesus says, come on, man, come to me. Those who come to me, I will know I cast out. So if you hear it, it's because you're being drawn, and if you're being drawn, then he wants you to come. So come to him. If you've declared that you are his, king, his kid, but you're just not interested in that, in the will of God in your life, then you need to go back to Jesus and deal with that, because something's not right. But whatever it is. It is only through the family of God, it is only by truly being a part of his, being of his mother and brothers and sisters, that you're going to find hope and peace and comfort and eternal life. That is for you if you believe. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information about The Gathering, or if you would like to hear more, please visit gatheringchattanooga.com.